Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Today is kind of fun because today is part two. I've never done a part two before. Today is part two of a message I gave in Salt Lake City a few weeks ago called Army of One. And when I was doing this message with that, that, that image, the army of one, what I meant was your heart, I mean a unified heart, because when we go through life, we get wounded. And when you get wounded, your heart can fragment, it can, it can get divided. And now we all have these competing, these competing desires. There's a part of me that really wants connection. I desire relationships with deep connection. And then there's another part of me that wants to avoid the pain of connection. So there's another part of me that doesn't want to do the vulnerability of that. And now we get into these stuck places. And I was talking about how and why that happens and how God leads us out of that. Today, I want to cover that same idea, but I want, to, I want us to visit our mind. I want to look at our thought life because one of the most active, and I mean active like around the clock 24 seven, one of the most active ways that we sabotage ourselves is with our thinking. We think, we, we sit in that seat, right? We sit on that, in that seat on like a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, we have this incredible revelation and God teaches us something. Pastor Samuel preaches an amazing word and we think, yes, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna be different, I'm gonna, it's, gonna be cha- it's gonna change now. But what we don't understand is that when we walk out, there's still this automated programming that we carry with us, that when we go down to the altar, deliverance is the moment when the Spirit of God does what we cannot do, and the power of the Holy Spirit breaks off oppression that we are powerless to. That somebody like the ministry team here, the people who know how to walk in the authority of the Holy Spirit break off spiritual oppression. That's what deliverance is. Discipleship starts when deliverance ends, and that's when we go through the reconditioning, the retraining, what what Paul calls the renewing, where we submit ourselves to that truth again and again and again and again, day after day. And when we are willing to do it, when we're willing to do the hard work of identifying where, are, where do I actually still carry lies? Where are the thoughts that are actually still betraying me? And we root those out. Over time, automatic negative thoughts actually become automatic God thoughts, but that takes time. And that's what I wanna talk about today. You guys can be seated. This is Army One Part Two. One of the, this is something that I actually, I was never really that, um, I mean, it was interesting to me, but it was never like as a therapist, I was never particularly preoccupied with uh, mindset and thought life until I found Awaken. And you guys, man, this is a church. This is a church that knows how to renew the mind. This is a church that dreams big, pursues vision, takes risks. And it was only after I kind of got involved and I, I got around and I started to learn and I started, oh my gosh, this is like, this is maybe the most, probably the most neglected area of our mental health is our, is our covert automatic thought life. Because there, there was a study a couple years ago, a guy named Dr. Fred Luskin at the Stanford University and it was like a two or three year longitudinal study. So it was two data, it was the best data we have. And one of the things, there was a lot, one of the things that he was paying attention to was how many thoughts does the average person have daily? What would you guys guess? 7,000, five? That guy's sleep. <laughs> if you were to guess 7,000, anybody guess higher than that, lower than that? 
70, 30,000. On average, their data concluded that on average, people have about 60,000 thoughts a day. 60,000 thoughts a day. That is 60,000 opportunities to experience the provision and protection of God or 60,000 opportunities to experience isolation and fear, right? And this is the kicker. 92% of that 60,000, so what is that? It's roughly 52, 54. I'm a therapist, not a mathematician. 54,000, I actually had to do that on a calculator, thoughts a day. 54,000 thoughts a day, 90% of those 60,000 are automatic thinking. Automatic thinking, which means your brain is in autopilot because your brain, you might not know this. This is, this is not me shaming you. My brain is the same way. Your brain is very lazy organ. It does not like to exude any unnecessary energy. It wants to conserve energy. In fact, your brain is the most energy consuming organ in your body. Do you know that? That 20% of the glucose, effectively the energy, or for the weirdos out there, ketones, whatever. It's like, if you don't like carbs, I can't help you. But 20% of the total energy you consume in a day was consumed by your brain. 20% more than any other organ in your body. And that's just like a normal day. I, 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 this particular statistic about 20 and 60%, I learned from uh, research they were doing about people who were going through therapy. In therapy or in, in moments like pastoral care, moments where you're doing really intensive reflective work or moments where you're trying to learn something and gain mastery over something new and you're really focused and your brain is working really hard, 60% of the, of the energy that is being consumed in your body, 60% is in your brain. Your brain consumes a lot of fuel and it really wants to cons- uh, conserve. It wants to minimize that fuel. And the way it does that, the number one strategy has a lot. The number one strategy is it automates as much thinking as possible, which is why you can go throughout your day and you can think 54,000 thoughts about your life and about people and about situations and about the color of that dog and all the things. And you don't even really fully realize that you're doing it, which is fine if our habituated thinking, if those automatic thoughts are in alignment with God's love and God's truth, you're living your best life. That is, you are living a place in connection, you are living a place of empowerment, you're living a place of courage and joy, of peace. But what if those thoughts are out of alignment? What if those thoughts are are programming that you picked up much, much earlier in your life? Sometimes, sometimes even between the ages of like two and eight, is we, we carry automatic thoughts, automatic program, automatic assessment and responses to the situations that we're in, to the, the treatment that we receive from people. And one of the things I want to, the main thing I want to do today is I want to talk about the three, the three biggest lies that I see showing up in my office as I get to work with people. The three biggest lies that color code and direct are automatic thoughts. They're not that, I bet you, I bet you if I was to like ask you explicitly, like I have your attention and you're accessing your prefrontal cortex and I said, do you believe this? And you say, no, I don't believe that. But that isn't where automatic thinking happens. Automatic thinking doesn't happen in your prefrontal cortex. Automatic thinking happens or it originates, I should say, in your mammalian brain. And so when, when we're out and um, somebody's rude to us at the grocery store, we have an emotional reaction to their rudeness. And then our, that rudeness triggers a thought response that's completely automated. You didn't, you didn't think of it, you didn't originate it. It's background noise. And if, yeah, does that make sense? Are we tracking? Yeah. One of the things that um, I think back to often when I was like, man, what were, the, what were the greatest turning points in my life, in my journey? And one of the, one of the, be- one of the biggest revelations 
from when I actually started doing my own recovery like 15 years ago was the realization that my, the, the emotion and the, and the relationship that I held with people in my life, my, my wife was the thing that the revelation was about, is actually my responsibility. So the revelation was I was going through this, my wife and I were in therapy, I was, I was doing individual work too because I was recovering from some addiction. And I was, I was doing this work and I'm going through these 12 steps and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I have always thought of the resentment that I feel towards Sarah as a byproduct of Sarah's behavior. I thought of the resentment that I feel, I feel that because of your tone, your words, the way you treat me. I thought you're responsible for my resentment. But to have that realization, I resent you because of the way that I think about you and your responses. There's this moment when I'm doing this work and I got into the car and there were a bunch of empty cups, <laughs> empty mugs in the car. And that's like a peeve of mine. We were sharing the car at the time and I got so frustrated. I was like, I've asked her so many times. And I just remember the God like pausing me and the Holy Spirit speaking up, Brian, when you look at those cups, what do you see? And I just remember thinking, I just like disregard. Like I've asked her not to do this so many times. So you know what I see? I see a wife who loves her husband so much. She brings coffee to work every single day, even though she really wants to stop at Starbucks. She really wants to do these other things that because you have this goal and you've asked her to conserve and you've asked her to cut, she's sacrificing because she loves you. And I thought, okay, ouch. Thanks for that. But it's realization that, that oh, come on, that contempt, that resentment I felt her, that was an automatic response I had. And it actually wasn't about Sarah. It was about how I was making sense out of that situation. So again, I want, I want to read this really quick passage from James, and I want to talk about these three lies. James 1, 23 and 24 says, Don't fool yourself into thinking you are a listener when you are anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. And what's that word it says right there? Act. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are, no idea what they look like. So this is a moment. I, 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 like, to, I like to lay that foundation because um, to do this kind of work, to, to have the discussion I want to have today, it's like a little bit raw. It's a little bit vulnerable. When we were in, that in the back, Pastor Katie was like, Brian, what, what, what are you thinking when it's so quiet in the room? Because you guys are not often quiet. She's like, does that, does that make you worry or something? I'm like, no, I'm used to it at this point. God doesn't, God doesn't call me to like deliver and give and share fluffy messages. It's just never been, I'm not like, I'm not a, a really inspirational fire you up kind of preacher. God told me what my anointing was. He used the word nerd and I said, okay, I accept it. I, I like that, that's fine. But this is the kind of work where we need permission because I'm gonna talk about things that feel heavy. I'm gonna talk about things that we cannot heal what we cannot feel. We can't rewire parts of our brain that are not activated. And so when we talk about these things, if you're sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, that hurts. I, I can connect with, I know what he's talking about right there. Can we just have permission to be people who are in process? That God is making me more whole and more healthy every single day and we're still in process. And, not but, and, I'm also allowed to say it's okay, it's normal to be in process. And even though the world says that these things are normal and acceptable, normal isn't good enough for me. I want God's best. 
I want relationships that thrive. I want courage that empowers me to take risks and believe God for big things, right? I want the life God has in store for me. And that's kind of a permission we got to give ourselves. Are you guys in? All right, beautiful. Number one, the first thing I want to, the first lie I want to name is the lie that conflict destroys connection. The lie, the belief, the feeling that conflict is inherently dangerous, that conflict itself is destructive. I grew up in a home where the word conflict had an association. Okay, my mom's, she's a tall woman. She's a powerful woman. She's a strong kind of Midwestern personality. And Sarah, Sarah, my, my wife was here in first service. When we were dating, in high school, she would pull up in front of my car and she had this little ritual. Before she got out of my car and knocked on the door, she would pull, park, be right in front of the car and then roll down the window and listen. And if I could hear Toby, this is what she would say to me, if I could hear your mom from the street, I just pulled away. I just like, I'm gonna keep driving. Cause this is not a day for like a pop by. This is not a day for saying hello. <laughs> conflict, the word conflict, I associated that with volume. I associated that with big anger and dramatic emotion. And I associated that with a household that had three divorces by the time I turned 12. That's what conflict meant to me. And so we had this, this moment when I, uh, I kind of moved fast, because like I said, Sarah and I dated in high school. And then we had a very dramatic, like category five kind of high school drama breakup. We had one of those. And then three years later, I kept my eye on her um, because about, about the time we graduated, I was feeling a lot of resentment. I didn't want Sarah in my life. I, I didn't want to be her friend. And then Sarah went on a mission trip for a month to Romania and got on fire for God. And she came back and she had bright red hair and she had this spirit of fire that I had never seen before. And all of a sudden she was like really looking attractive again. And so I decided <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get close to Sarah again. But I waited. I took my time. We took about two years. And uh, two years after we graduated high school, I sat Sarah down. I told her I don't want to just be your friend. I want to be more than friends. And I pulled out a three-ring binder, and I opened it up to a five-year plan for our relationship. This is true. I wanted her to know I was serious. I wanted to take that girl off the market. Ladies, if, if, if a guy sits you down with a five-year plan as he's asking you out, it's not an automatic no. I'm not saying date him, but he might be misguided. He had a good intention. He might, he might just be like, I want to be on purpose for you. So the very next day, so we've been dating, quote unquote dating for like 24 hours. And Sarah and I took this really short road trip from Northern California down South because I was living in San Diego at the time. And on our way there, we're talking about vision and we're talking about our lives. And, and I told Sarah something that um, God had, I, I believed God had placed on my heart. It sounded really spiritual to me. I had read like six Gary Smalley books about marriage, so I thought I knew what I was doing. I was pretty confident, and I told her, I believe that God is calling me to never have a fight with my wife. We're going to do the marathon. We're going to go 80 years, and we're never going to have a fight. And my wife, bless her soul, is very patient, and she doesn't judge people too quickly, and she just kind of like cocked her head to the side. Have you ever seen a Labrador do that? They kind of cocked their head to the side. She gave me that grin look, and it's like, oh, that's really sweet, but I think you're going to fight with your wife. Do you notice, you know, so she, you're going to fight with your wife? There was like a little bit of <laughs> yet to be seen, buddy. But I really did. I believed, I had a, I had a belief that conflict 
was destructive fighting, that that's what conflict was. At the same time we were getting engaged, a good friend of Sarah's best friend was also getting engaged. Um, and they didn't, they didn't have that fear. So I remember as we're getting engaged and we're really, really early married, there's this one time we picked up her best friend from the airport and her friend got in the car and I asked her a question, like, how's it going? They were getting, I think you're really, maybe really close to their wedding. And I remember she just started crying because she was feeling some really hard things. And I remember Sarah, like, would talk to her on the phone and Sarah would say, man, they're just working through some really hard stuff right now. And in my head, I thought, ah, Jeremy must not be quite as mature as I am because they're having a lot of conflict over there. What I didn't know is that Jeremy had the wisdom to know you either fight early or you fight later. There's no getting around conflict. And their marriage, their marriage started out really intense and challenging. They worked through really hard stuff and really rich and got stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where I remember about two years later, maybe a year and a half later, they came over to our house, we were playing cards. And I remember they, I remember making, making an observation. I had never seen this before. Jeremy and Lacey were like, almost, um, they, were, they were being playful, we were having fun, we were all laughing, and they would say these things like, oh, I can never get away with saying that to Sarah. I remember this one point, we were, we're playing cards and they're very competitive, and Lacey's saying something like, you make me want to hit you. Do you want me to want to hit you? And I just remember thinking, there's something, there's something here that's healthy. It feels violent, but there's something here that's really healthy. And then having these moments where we'd, we'd hear about like their growth and they're like, oh wow, they, they, they apparently are working stuff out and they were getting more and more stable. While Sarah over the, and, I, and myself over the first two years of our marriage were getting more and more rocky. And about two years into our marriage when, when our cards, our kind of house of cards collapsed, Jeremy was the man that I called because I knew he knew something I didn't understand. That he understood that conflict is A, it's natural, Conflict is, is a natural byproduct of being in close community, close relationship. B, conflict is productive. I am the man today because of the conflict that my wife brought into my life. It's a good thing. It helped me grow up. Conflict is productive. When done well, healthy conflict leads to growth. And thirdly, conflict is a form of intimacy. You see, we think of conflict, we think of fighting and destructive conflict, and we think, man, conflict ends in disconnection. No, conflict is bumping into the limitations of what you know about the, people's, the people in your life, you, what you know about their internal world. It, it's where we bump in, I was like, oh, you reach so deep into my heart, you access some pain, and now I have an opportunity, not just to repair things with you, I have an opportunity to heal that pain because you got close enough to reach it, right? Conflict is supposed to be a healing process. It's supposed to conclude with deeper connection. I didn't understand those things. Proverbs 27.6 says it this way. It says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but enemies multiply kisses. I didn't know this, but all the times I kind of buried my frustration and I disowned the things that annoyed me and I just like, I'm not gonna start a fight. I'm not gonna make trouble. I'm not, I was actually entering into enemy territory. I was giving my wife false kisses that a friend, wow. that the pain that comes from real healthy friendship is trustworthy pain. It's a good thing. God wants to take us deeper. The second lie I wanna touch 
Is the, it, it says uh, 24 in red. Is that, should I be alarmed by that? No, I'm good. I was like, did I just go 68 minutes? Okay. The second lie that shows up in my office and wreaks havoc and destroys our relationship is a lie that I am not loved. And I know, like I said before, we, got, we need this permission to do this because we can't name these things without feeling the weight, without feeling the weight of them. Now this, now everybody, when we talk about these three lies, everybody is going to have a place, in, a, a moment in their life where you're like, yeah, I can relate to that. I have felt that pain. I know what it feels like to feel unloved. I know what it feels like to feel like the other person is unsafe or to feel like conflict is, is bad. Like we can all relate to What we're really looking for is where do I default? I don't default to this one. This is, a, this is the wound that my wife kind of defaulted to in her, her earlier life. This was the program my wife internalized. So we were driving the car and I was like, man, lies one and three are easy for me to kind of flesh out. I can wrap language around them pretty easily. Sarah, like, what do those thoughts sound like? When you get into that, I'm not loved territory, like, what does it sound like? And without skipping a beat, she says, I knew I couldn't count on you. That's what that thought sounds like. It's the thought that, and she, read, she referenced a, a fight we recently had, not a fight, we referenced a conflict we recently had, where she says, I knew you'd leave the, the gardening tools out in the front yard. So what happened several weeks ago is I, I was working on the front yard and I left this stuff out and she asked me, hey, Ray, will you, like, will you put that away? Hey, no problem. I forgot. She asked me a second time, hey, sweetie, will you put that away? Because you, you said you wouldn't, you didn't. No problem. I'm so sorry. I forgot. Three times she asked me, three times I forgot. And it was this really beautiful moment for me, actually, because I was driving in the car and I got, I got a text from her. And I read this text message and the text message is my wife saying, I could, I could, I could like hear the breath in the text message. Like, okay, I'm not sure what to do. That's what the text said. It said, I don't know what to do. I've asked you three times. I am feeling frustrated, but I know you're super busy. I just don't want to go to that place where I feel like I can't count on you. How can I help you follow through on this? It's like, oh, that is what conflict is supposed to sound. Because what the end, what, what we would have heard like eight or 10 years ago, the message I would have got would have been like, are you serious? It's super frustrating that you clearly don't love me and all you care about is, I'm, I'm, I'm turning it up a little bit, but it was so cool to get that text message. Like, wow, my wife's automatic thoughts have been so deeply transformed that her automatic thought is, I know you're going through something hard. I know you're busy. And I know that I have a need to know that I can count on you and you're not gonna break your word to me. That's a need that I have. So what do we do with this? And she left it up to me in the past. You know what happened in that? In the past with that attack, I would, have, I, would have, I would have felt attacked, I would have felt defensive, and I would have pushed away her concerns. I would have pushed away maybe the, the meanness or the anger that I felt. I also would have pushed away the validity. I would have pushed away my own growth. But when I got that text message, I was like, oh, I can't wait to get home and put those tools away. I want to show my wife that she can count on me. Honey, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for telling me this way. But when she was, uh, we were sitting in the car and she's like, she rattled off these three, what, is it, what does that wound sound like? The first thing she said was, I knew I couldn't count on you. Then she referenced that five, she said, and she gave me a little wink when she said, I knew you were gonna leave those out. And then she kind of took it all the way to 10. And she says, the, the extreme of that is, I knew you'd leave. Because that pain, that wound, beneath I'm not loved is a deeper fear, it's a deeper wound that we don't even, most of us don't even dare wrap language around it. It's the deeper wound that I'm not worthy. 
Because when we're young, and you don't even have to be young, I, I know people who, who actually receive a wound like this later in like uh, early adult life, but especially when we're young, when people aren't reliable, when people let us down, when we have the experience of rejection or isolation, our brain only has two things, one of two things that it can do with that pain. It can either externalize the pain and say the problem is you, or it can internalize that pain and say the problem is me. When we internalize that pain, the message is there's something wrong with me and I can't count on the, on the need to be loved. That's not a reliable thing. So thoughts that that person might have about themselves they say, oh, I, I, tend to, I tend to focus on my partner's strengths a lot. I tend to focus on my friend's strengths, on, my, on the people in my life. I, fo I focus on their strengths, and it, when I focus on their strengths, I actually feel insecure. It leaves me feeling like, oh, man, what are my strengths? They feel not good enough. And they say, oh, I just tend to kind of take better care of others than I take of myself. Or they might think, man, I give and I give, and they're frustrated moments, and they're like, I feel like nobody ever gives back. Like, nobody loves me as much as I love them. And the things that you might find yourself thinking about other people, these are just examples. Don't think prescriptive. You might, man, I knew I couldn't count on you, like Sarah said. And the feeling that, man, people in my life tend to feel really self-centered. Like, why you don't care about me, or you're not thinking about me, or I'm not special to you? Because that person sits with a pain that they're constantly having to manage. Like, oh man, do I really know? Do I really know that the people in my life delight in me? Can I feel that? And when they sit with that anxiety, Sarah was even taking me deeper. She's like, most of the time, I don't feel unloved. Most of the time, the anxiety surfaces and I feel unliked. Like when we would get into these fights, like these really tense moments, and, and maybe that, you know, five or 10% of the time would actually go someplace that felt more productive, right? We wouldn't spiral out of control early in our marriage. We get to that place where we were sharing something more vulnerable. I remember Sarah would say, like, Brian, when, when we're stuck in that place, there's just this deep feeling like, you don't love me. And I say, you what? You think I don't love you? And she's like, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Do you, do you never have that feeling like you wonder if I love you? No. I literally never questioned that. I think you might not like me in that moment. I think I probably really irritated you or made you really angry. I think you're focusing on my flaws and that, I feel like you don't respect me maybe. But I never questioned, does she love me? But that's where her heart goes in pain. The second, the second belief, the second lie I want to name, or is this the third? I'm sorry, this is the third lie. The third lie I want to name is the lie that you're not capable. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's how I carry it, right? So if Sarah's wound, if, if the first wound is the wound that you're not, uh, is the wound that I'm not worthy, I'm not loved because deep down I'm not worthy, you're not capable is the wound that you're not trustworthy. Others the people in my life, the people that I want to rely on, the people I want to be close to, they are not trustworthy with my heart. And this is just, it's the exact opposite of what I said before. We only have two options. I can internalize it or I can externalize it. The person who externalizes the threat, if, if let's, let's say it this way, if, my, if I internalize it and the fear or the wound is that I'm not loved, where's the solution? The solution is outside of me. If the problem is inside, then the thing I need, I need your reassurance. I need you to turn towards me. And so we go into these like critical behaviors or anger behaviors. We go into control behaviors because we're, there's something outside of us that we need. If the threat is outside and the threat is you're not trustworthy, where's the solution? The solution is inside. The safety is like, you know what? I, I'll take care of my needs. I'll take care of my own heart, actually. 
I'm just better at caring for my needs than other people, so don't worry about me. And we don't want that. We don't, nobody wants to live in emotional isolation. We get into relationships with like, oh, we just, I just take really good care of myself, and I want to I show you as much of my heart as possible. But as those wounds start to accumulate, as, as you have a bad day or your tone feels off or you say something critical, more and more my brain concludes, oh man, nothing's good enough for you, is it? More and more my brain concludes, oh, it's actually not safe to show you my heart. And very slowly, that person starts to put up walls. So thoughts that that person might have about themselves, I just know how to take care of myself better. I'm kind of a do-it-myself kind of person. Man, I often feel like people, maybe my friends or my spouse, my girlfriend, I feel like they want something from me that I just can't give them. And then when it gets really stressful, I start to feel suffocated. And then we start to grow in this feeling of resentment, like, man, what's wrong with you? You want, you want too much. And what's going up? Walls are going up. Because my brain is accessing, it's, it's thinking about the situation in a way that leaves me wanting you less. Because wanting you feels unsafe. There was a moment really early in my, in my uh, career where I had just, just recently finished graduate school. It was like one of the first times, maybe even actually the first time that somebody like said, hey, Brian, would you come share with a group? And it was a MOPS group. If you don't know what MOPS is, Mothers of Preschoolers. It's a massive group of women in the, like the highest intensity joy kind of season of their life, just on the brink of sanity. It's like, that's the group you're talking to. And... When you talk to that kind of group and you're a mental health professional and you're talking about emotional responsiveness and you're talking about self-care, you're talking about these things, it's an easy, it's an easy crowd. They're all about you. They want, they want to hear about emotional responsiveness. They want to hear about self-care. They want to hear that, okay, I'm not insane. Yeah. I, I, the feelings that I'm feeling are normal. And it's even more fun, I think, this is my theory, it's even more fun when it's a dude on stage talking about emotional responsiveness and you know, self-care and things like that. So... My wife goes with me to this mops group, and I teach, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, and I get down, and I'm talking to the people, and when we leave, my wife shares with me that one of the women in the crowd approached her after my talk, and she came up, and she did the little arm thing where she, like, touches the arm. She said, you are so lucky. <laughs> and me knowing the right answer in that, Psh, I'm the lucky one, is what I said to Sarah, um, but in my head, I thought, yeah, she is pretty lucky. I'm pretty sensitive. And it's one of those moments where in the moment it didn't feel too dangerous, but I was still healing, she's still healing. We've only kind of been in growth and in healing for like, at this point, maybe like a year, year and a half. So we're still really early in our healing process. And we still get really stuck in conflict. And those, those danger cues, those alarm systems still go off pretty intense. And the first time we had a fight after that talk, my brain, as it's getting more and more tense and we're feeling more and more stuck, my brain retrieved that file. Yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting there. I didn't say this out loud. Remember, I'm very smart. <laughs> I didn't say this out loud, but I remember sitting there looking at Sarah, feeling like just defeated and frustrated. She looked angry. And I remember just thinking in my head, like, man, people who don't even know me respect me more than you. <laughs> it is funny, if you think about it. But it didn't feel funny in that moment. In that moment, it felt like justification. It felt like, oh, you're not safe. 
If you really love me, you'd respect me more than this. If you were safe, if you were trustworthy, you wouldn't feel these things or talk to me this way. And then we took a break because at this point we're like, okay, we're getting better at this. This is not how we want conflict to go. We took a break and at that point our agreement was like, okay, we can take a break if you go take a break with the Lord. And I remember sitting with the Lord I'm still angry about it. And I said, those, and to, with God, I can say, like, okay, you already, you already know I thought this. I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to do. It feels like people who don't even know me respect me more than Sarah. And God's response, have you ever felt God respond to you in a way that was like very nonverbal? I know that's hard, but you can feel his presence. You can almost feel like his arm is around you, but he's just like... Yeah. <laughs> it's just like you can just feel... He's like, do I have to say it? Or are you going to, I'll just give you a second. You'll get there. You'll get there. He's like, okay. So when I get wounded, when I feel threatened, when I feel not good enough, I outsource that pain. And I say, you know what the problem here is? The problem is that you don't respect me the way you should. And I push that pain away. Because maybe... My wife not respecting me, the person who knows me greater than anybody on earth, not respecting me as the woman who observed 30 minutes of my talk, maybe that's data about me. Maybe that has something to do with me, right? Like I, I posted a video recently, a couple weeks ago, of like this bear that just cracked me up. This bear's walking through the woods and it comes across a mirror that's nailed to a tree. Have you guys seen this? And I, I, just, I just added the words, that is the moment when you realize who is to blame for the problems in your life. And he freaks out and he rips the mirror off the tree. Pastor Leanne actually took the video and she posted it. Like, if you want to just talk about the end-all, be-all, you're like, I'm, I'm retiring right now. This is the pinnacle. Pastor Leanne took one of my videos. <laughs> Greatest moment of my life. <laughs> but that's a painful moment. The moment you realize, oh, I think my resentment is your fault. My resentment is my fault. This is how I build the wall. I think about you automatically I think about you in a way that outsources and it says, you know what, the problem is out there. What, did that person, what does that person tend to think about other people? They might have the thought, nothing is good enough for you. They might have the, one of those thoughts like, oh, here we go again. You'll hear a lot of blaming for the person who has this wound because it's like, you know what, the only reason we ever fight is because you get angry or you start fights. Because what they're doing is they're, they're pushing that pain away. This is the person that does a lot of comparison. This is the person that, because remember, if, if the threat is out there, if the threat is the person that I want to be close to, yeah. then the solution is not needing to be close to them. And so what I want to do is I want to think about that person in a way that turns down the volume on my desire for closeness. And so I might compare Sarah to other, compare things I know about Sarah to things I don't know about other people. Why? So that Sarah comes up short because the more short Sarah comes up in my mind, the less I feel the craving and the vacuum and the deficit and the desire for that closeness and that repair. The more I'm able to tell myself I'm actually good. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Romans 12 verses four and five says something that really captures the heart of human connection. It says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. It is so important that no matter what kind of cognitive loop we might be trapped in, is that we realize God 
created us to be in connection with one another. Not even God himself ever existed outside of relationship. That before he created the heavens and the earth, before he created us humans, that even then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in loving communion. God does not exist outside of relationship and we are not meant to either. And I think the hardest thing, the hardest thing about healing these wounds is remember what is automatic is invisible. And I don't even realize that, oh man, that, that thought that triggers anger towards you, it makes me want to pursue you, makes me want to go after you, makes me want to like tell you what, how to fix this because you hurt me. It makes me want to try and control you or express anger or that thought that leaves me making, wanting to pull away from you and build a wall and, and kind of access apathy. That those are actually really old programming and they're lies that we don't want to put our trust in anymore. What I want to ask because again, this is raw. What I ask is if you guys would just close your eyes for a second. And if you guys were to think, and when I hear those three lies, when I hear the lie that conflict is dangerous and destructive, conflict is something to be avoided. When I hear the lie that I am not loved, that I can't count on other people to love me. Or hear the lie that other people aren't safe. If you can connect with one of those lies, I want to pray for you. So if you can connect, if you can feel one of those, I just want you to raise your hand. Yeah, I see you. Awesome. Awesome. Almost every hand is up. And I want you to know that transformation, healing, isn't a byproduct of the realizing. It's not a byproduct of getting to sit in that seat and learn, oh, there's a better way. That actually doesn't lead towards transformation. Transformation is a byproduct of the doing. It's a byproduct of letting somebody hold my hand, looking into somebody's eyes, naming the lie and the fear that I'm carrying, and having that person pray that lie off of my life. It's a byproduct of doing the work every day and saying, oh, I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch for that lie. I'm gonna watch for thoughts that reflect that pain. And every single time they surface, I'm gonna do what Romans did. I'm gonna take them captive and I'm gonna bring them in to alignment. I wanna show you guys a worksheet, a process, a, a discipline, a practice that has been transformative in my life and, and many, many people I've worked with over the years. But before I show you this practice, I want to be so clear that healing never starts with a practice that you can do all by yourself. Healing always starts at the altar. Healing always starts when we bring our wounds to the only physician who can heal them and we lay them on the altar and we trust that God's love and God's truth is going to lead me out. And so the, the reason I start there is because I want to show you this practice, but I don't want to give you I don't want to give you false hope. I don't want to give you the sense, okay, ooh, Brian gave me this private little practice that I can do all by myself now, and now I don't need to know. In fact, I would say the practice that I'm gonna give you isn't even done until you've shared it with somebody else. Even though it's something you do privately, it is not complete until you shared it with somebody else. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is if you were one of those, if you just raise your hand, I want to pray for you and I want you to know the first thing I want you to do is share 
the revelation with somebody who can pray for you. Bring that revelation. Say it out loud to a person who can hear you and say, I hear you. I love you. It's not true. I'm with you. Let's pray together. So just close your eyes. If, if you raise your hand, Lord, I pray for every hand that went up. I pray for every heart that is opening and doing the, the vulnerable, the courageous work of letting you search them like Paul, like David said. Search me, oh God. God, I pray for every wound. You know where these armor plates came from. You know where these lies came from. You know the experiences and the pain, the moments of rejection or the moments of disappointment that installed this programming. God, I pray that you would heal our hearts. Lord, I pray over the lies and I bind them up in the name of Jesus. I break off the lie of their life that says that they are unlovable or, or other people are untrustworthy. Lord, I break off the lie that says conflict is dangerous, that they can take courage, they can trust you, they can vulnerably enter into conflict with the people in their life that they love and they can reestablish connection. And Lord, I loose the safety that only your spirit can give us. And what I wanna encourage you to do is a practice I'm gonna show you right now, which I call thought alignment. It's rooted in what we, something called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and I used, I took something that I thought was brilliant. I said, okay, what, do, what does it look like to bring this directly under God's truth? Can we show that PDF real quick? So what you're seeing is these seven categories. Because that, that language, let's take the thought captive. It sounds really good, but how do you actually do it? Like, what do we actually do? And how do we take captive in a way that leads to neural rewiring that actually needs to new automatic thoughts. And this is a concrete way, a powerful way you can do this. First thing you're gonna do is you see situation. And so what is, the, what is the beacon light? What is the dashboard light? What is the thing that alerts me that it's time to take something captive? It's pain. Your emotion is not betraying you. It's not always rational. That's okay, emotion was never meant to be rational. Your emotion is an alarm system. It's a compass that's pointing you to an unmet need. So when you feel anger, Take a second, don't let the anger steer the car, but ask that question, why am I feeling anger? What's the thought, what's the belief? What is the agreement that I've made that's led me to feel anger or feel despair or feel alone or feel sadness or feel fear? When I feel one of those pain emotions, because you know what the pattern is in your life, you're gonna describe what is happening right now. Oh, I was just in a, in a tough conversation with a friend or I was in a tough conversation or I got bad news or I, I, I learned some, um, I saw a report or something. Something happened that triggered anxiety, anger, or loneliness, something triggered the pain. I'm gonna just describe what was it, as few words as possible. I'm gonna say initial response, but I want you guys to write down, and I'll tell you, this is the tricky part, is I want you to write down the emotion that got activated, the emotion. When you say, what are you feeling? The most common response is, I feel like, and then they give me thoughts. I feel like nothing I say matters to them. I feel like, and they give a thought. That's actually not a feeling. feeling is an emotion where I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel scared, I feel trepidation, I feel, I want you to write an emotion word and then you can scale it, I mean one to 10, how intense is this emotion? What all we're doing, all we're doing is we're getting in tune with the alarm system, we're listening to the alarm, that's all we're doing. And then we're gonna write down what is the negative thought that's associated with that pain? You say, I can never count on the people in my life or uh, I don't matter or they don't care. I'm gonna write down that destructive, that negative thought that keeps me trapped, that automatic thinking. Supporting evidence and opposing evidence 
those are categories I use when we realize that there's this really rigid belief. So if you notice, if you go through the other five categories and you notice, man, just rerouting my direction, just rerouting my attention, just thinking of that new thought, that God thought, that aligned thought, loosens the pain and it reroute and I feel hope, then you don't need to do the, the evidence. But if you feel really, really rigid, like, man, I'm looking at this God thought, I'm, I'm bringing my thoughts into alignment, it just doesn't feel true, I still feel the pain. Then you wanna, okay, what evidence makes this feel true? And what do I know that makes that not true? We wanna break, break down the evidence. The aligned thought is when I bring that fear under God's truth. Pastor Samuel has some incredible books that would help brilliantly with this work, but it's the ability to say, okay, how do I bring that thought, the, the, the pain maybe that my spouse is having a bad day or the frustration that a project didn't go my way, how do I bring that thought into alignment with God? What I, what I know is, okay, the, my automatic thought might be, oh, they don't care. What I know is they're frustrated right now. And what I know that that, that frustration will end. And then we'll probably come back and we'll, we'll experience connection again, that this is momentary. And I know that they actually do love me and I know that I can count on God and that I'm never alone, right? We wanna bring that thought under God's truth. And then lastly, as we focus on that God thought, as we focus on that aligned thought, what do I notice? And I want you guys to highlight and focus on the emotional shift. Oh, I feel hope. Or I feel a little bit, a little bit less anxiety. I feel excited. I feel compassion for that person instead of anger for that person because Emotion is the, what we call neural growth factor. Emotion is actually the energy in your brain that reroutes neural pathways. I have to experience it for a thought to become a belief. Does that make sense? So we want, as much as possible, we wanna let ourselves focus on, man, what does it feel like to reroute my attention towards the truth of God? Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen. For more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.